Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Martin is the co-founder and president of Speaker Spotlight, one of the world's largest and most respected speakers agencies who have arranged more than 35,000 speaking engagements in over 35 countries worldwide, as well as the managing director of the Spotlight Agency, a group that connects high-caliber talent across fields with opportunities worldwide. Martin is a graduate of the Faculty of Economics at the University of Western Ontario and the Faculty of Law at Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto. Prior to co-founding Speaker Spotlight, Martin was a corporate lawyer at a prestigious international law firm. When he realized early on his legal career that he needed to do something more entrepreneurial, he learned valuable best practices that have shaped his approach to client service and business management. Martin's views on the speaking industry have been reported in various television and print media and have been published in over 60 countries. He's been a guest lecturer at several colleges and universities and was a keynote speaker at the Public Word Speaker Forum at the Center of Public Leadership at Harvard Kennedy School in Cambridge. Martin is an unapologetic idealist. He's passionate about people and ideas, and after 25-plus years in the speaking industry, Martin believes more than ever that a great speech can provide the impetus for action and be a catalyst for change. Martin, welcome to the One Away Show. Hey, great to be here, Brian. Really looking forward to the chat. Yes, uh, so good to be here and uh, just thrilled to uh, be able to do this. I know it took a bit of time, so uh, we're here. Martin, what is the One Away moment that you want to share with us today? This goes back a little while. It goes back about 25 years for me, but I was, um, you know, I had finished law school. I was working in a very prestigious law firm. And uh, that was sort of the, the route that my life was taking. And um, through a, a series of events, which I could uh, uh, describe to you, the, the, the week or two that led up to it, uh, the, the moment was, um, it, was a, it was a nice summer morning in Toronto. It was July, I remember. Um, and I was uh, on the subway on the way to work and decided today's the day I'm going to quit. And I hadn't really planned it out. I hadn't told anybody I was going to do it that day. I mean, I'd had conversations uh, with my wife. We had just gotten married a few weeks earlier, um, but I didn't know that was going to be the day until I got off the subway and I said, you know what, uh, I got to do this today. And so I, um, I, you know, the managing partner in our law firm, I worked in a pretty big law firm. There's a few hundred people that worked there. So managing partner was obviously a busy guy and a hard guy to pin down. So I had to walk past his office to get to my office every morning. And it was probably about 7, 7.30 in the morning. And I thought, um, and he was one of the only people who actually locked his door at night. So when he left at night, he would lock his door. So I knew if his door was open, it meant he was already in. And I thought, I didn't know what I was going to say, but I thought if he is in, I'm just going to go in and I'm going to do this. And as I was coming up to his office, I could see that it was slightly ajar. And I knocked on and he was just getting in. I remember he was uh, emptying his, putting his car keys and his wallet and stuff in his desk. And I said, hey, can I just get a couple minutes of your time? And he looked at me a bit concerned and said, sure. Is, is everything okay? And I said, yeah, everything's fine. I just need to chat for a few minutes. And then, uh, so I sat down and I told him, I said, look, this is probably going to come as a little bit of a surprise to you, but I've given this a fair bit of thought and I've decided I'm going to, uh, leave the firm and I'm going to leave the practice of law. And, um, 
he looked at me. He was a little bit confused. I think it startled. It was the last thing I think he thought I was going to say. And he said, uh, like, he basically said, like, what? Like, I, you, I can't let you do this. And for a moment, I thought, like, is there something in my uh, employment agreement or something that doesn't allow me to quit when I want to? But, um, but I said, you know, he said, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. Mm. And, um, and I can't let you do it. And I'll tell you what he said, I will let you walk out the store and I won't breathe a word of this to the other partners in the firm. And we'll just pretend this didn't happen. And I said, look, I, I really appreciate it, but, um, I, I know this is coming out of, of left field to you, but for me, I have actually thought about this a lot and I need to do it. And so then he, he said, okay, well, you know what, I'll let who you need to know, know at the firm and let me know when you've done that. And we'll send out a, an email and, um, and notify everybody. And, uh, and so I gave my two weeks notice and that from that day forward, uh, I've never taken a paycheck from anybody else. I've been uh, an entrepreneur since then. And um, it was very scary day. And, um, you know, and, and when, when someone, t- you know, when you're 25 years old and someone t- tells you you're making the biggest mistake of your life, which is the, what I was told, you know, it gives you pause for thought, but I knew in my heart, it was the right thing to do. And, um, I've never, never regretted it for a moment since. Yeah. Well, I gotta admire your bravery and encourage at, uh, such a formative age, right. When careers are maybe stack up the ladder or careers take a term for, you know, something more aligned at a heart and soul level. And, and you picked the ladder and, uh, when you, when you could have stayed and, you know, sure made money and been just fine, but you knew it was wrong. So I want to go to that. Uh, you said you didn't know it was the day that you needed to, to stop. Did you have any, just, let's just call it physical manifestations inside of you that, um, weren't right or just felt different or off that, like, you just knew it was the day, like what, what prompted, like, what led up to that? That's a great question. So, yeah, I, you know, I don't think everybody is wired this way, but for me, I was having almost a visceral reaction to, to work. So what had happened was, um, I had, I'd gotten married, uh, just a few weeks before and, um, and so we went on a short honeymoon, came back and it just, you know, it wasn't work, wasn't going great up until then for me. I mean, I think I was doing a good job. I think they were very happy with me, but personally I wasn't fulfilled with my work and I wasn't enjoying it at all. And, um, so, so I decided, you know, I, I have a lot going on with the wedding and everything else. I thought, I don't, I'm not going to quit my job two weeks before the wedding, probably freak out my in-laws and, and, uh, and, and my wife's family. So, so, uh, you know, after that though, it was sort of like, okay, we're married. And, uh, my wife was, you know, very supportive. We had a lot of conversations and she was like, you got to do this, like whenever you ready. But, you know, she was obviously on board and what had happened, I'll, I'll kind of walk you through the last week or two before it. So, so I remember like a couple of weeks before the day I quit, you know, going to the office and, and, and then like at lunchtime going out to get a sandwich and thinking, God, I feel like just going home and just like, mm-hmm. you know, calling in sort of sick and saying I wasn't feeling well, but I went back to the office and I finished the day. And then the next day I remember, you know, getting into the office first thing in the morning and I had this, you know, I'd get in pretty early, usually by seven o'clock or so. So I remember feeling, had this feeling like, you know what, maybe I'm just going to go home. Like maybe I'll just turn around and go home. No one even knows necessarily that I was here and I'll call in sick. And then the next day, I remember getting to my subway stop and not feeling like I wanted to get off the subway. And then the next day, I was standing on the platform 
before getting on the subway and thinking, I feel like just turning around and going home and not even getting on the subway. And then the next morning, which is probably now the three or four days before I quit, it was like, I didn't feel like getting dressed in the morning and leaving the house to go to work. And then the next morning, it was like, I didn't feel like getting out of bed. So every day it sort of got like closer and closer and, you know, sort of earlier and earlier in the day that I just didn't want to do it. And so, um, and so that was sort of the point where I was like, okay, I've got to get out of bed and I've got to do this today. And I don't think I was like clinically depressed or anything like that. I think I just hated my job, to be honest. And I think if I had stayed though, I think it would have led to a lot of other, you know, health issues, potentially, you know, physical, mental manifestations of what I was feeling. But I was sort of pushing through, pushing through, pushing through as long as I felt like I could. Mm. And then when I felt like I couldn't do it anymore, I was like, okay, this is it. And I got it. I got to just cut the cord right here and, and do this. Yeah. So special, you know, it was special that you listened internally, uh, and maybe saw the long-term outcomes or didn't see them, but knew they could be bad. Uh, a quote I also heard growing up, my mom always told me, she said, when the pain of uh, staying is greater than the pain of leaving, uh, that's when you know it's time to go. And it seems like that the pain of staying was was right in front of you. Um, and you you listened and you left. And uh, so, and it's neat that your wife as well, right? Uh, it's such a young period in your marriage, uh, making a really hard decision, you know, you had her full support, right? Um, sort of yeah. Like foundational level. That was huge. I mean, you know, I knew that, that she didn't like me for my job, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't the attraction. So, so yeah, I mean, that, that was incredibly important because I knew that whatever happened, you know, we were in it together and, and, and she was right beside me in, in these decisions. So, um, so that was, that was really, really helpful because, you know, making a decision like that was hard enough, but if you were doing it on your own or, you know, against the wishes of your, your partner or, you know, that, that would be tough. And to be honest, like, you know, again, my family didn't even know I, I, I quit until I let them know they, they actually had no idea I was even thinking about it because I didn't want to worry them too much and think that, I, you know, they think that I'd lost my mind because, you know, you go through all this school and you get a great job and you have a, you know, nice office with a great view and, and, you know, prestigious job that lots of people would, would, you know, love to have. And you turn your back on that. And, and, and a lot of people probably thought like, you know, have I lost my mind? Because, you know, who does that? And I was only six months into it, right? I think I might've set the record that may still stand to this day at the firm of, uh, you know, shortest tenure before, before deciding to, to leave. Um, so I, I wear that proudly if that's still the case. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I just appreciate your candid nature, you know, around that point in time in your life, because I'm sure it gives hope for maybe others listening who also feel the need that they need to go do this too for themselves. So um, I'm curious, you know, Martin, when you make a decision like that, it can create a ripple effect internally for those watching. And I'm curious, how did, did your let's just say boldness to take a stand for what yourself um, have any follow, you know, domino effect for anyone internally at the business or did things, you know, from what you recall, just hum along. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. You say, um, you know, uh, like people said, Oh, you know, that was so brave of you to quit or you have you know, so much courage to do that. I wouldn't have had the guts to do that. And the truth was at the time, I actually felt like a coward. I felt like the exact opposite. I thought mm -hmm. all these people around here are just sucking it up and, and going to work every day. 
and making it work. And, and for me, I thought I was actually in a way taking the easy way out. I was like, you know, I'm going to cut and run. Like I'm, 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 I'm out of here. And so I didn't certainly did not feel like I was brave or courageous or anything like that at the time. Uh, I felt that uh, actually quite the opposite in many ways. That's for some reason, I didn't have what it takes to stick it out. And, um, you know, and I remember, you know, a couple of people I spoke to family members even were like, you know, it's only been six months. You know, how do you know, you know, you haven't done it long enough. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty much sure. I know it after six months, I, this is not getting better. It's getting worse for me. Um, there was a few other people that I know that, that left, uh, the firm, uh, other times, but most stayed, I mean, it was a, you know, it's a very good firm and most people are there and, and some are still there to this day. Um, but I do, you know, it's interesting. The, um, uh, I think it's called, um, uh, lawyers weekly or something. There's a magazine that it's published up here for, for lawyers. And I was actually interviewed for a story. I don't know how they found me, but, um, uh, they did a story on non-traditional careers for lawyers. And I think part of the reason was, um, you know, they're graduating more. I don't know if this is still the case, but at the time they were graduating more law students and there were available jobs. So they were trying to demonstrate that there are lots of, um, other things that lawyers can do using the skills that they learn in law school or practicing law. So they actually, there was a conference that was put together and there was a number of us who had sort of quote unquote, non-traditional, um, uh, jobs. Um, and I was interviewed for this story, um, in this magazine and, um, uh, and since then, still to this day, a few times a year, I hear from young lawyers or articling students who are going through something very similar to what I went through, and they read the story, and it kind of resonates with them, and they want to wow. just chat. Yeah, and um, and so I'm like always happy to chat. I, you know, we, you know, we, in in COVID, it's been mostly just by Zoom and phone. Before that, you know, we used to I used to sometimes you know go for lunch or meet someone you know in the park near our office and just sit and chat and just listen to what they're going through. And it's amazing how similar it would sound. And all of these people, it's funny, like men, women, different ethnic backgrounds and cultures. It's like they're all describing the exact same thing, which is exactly what I went through. So it's weird. I think there's some people who are just wired in a certain way. I'm not saying it's better or worse. In some ways it makes things tougher, sure. but, but that have sort of very strong visceral reactions to what they're doing. And, and if they don't make a move, I think it's ultimately going to have an effect on their physical and mental health. Yeah. Well, it's neat to see the impact that of your own experience. Right. And, um, you know, how many years later, it's still, you're still making an impact through an article that people reach out and feel safe and, uh, you can, you can share with them. Yeah. Um, the yeah. article must be somewhere on the internet. Cause, cause you know, this magazine did not have a very wide circulation. I don't think it was, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an industry type thing, but yeah, it's out there somewhere because, you know, I get these LinkedIn messages and, and it's nice, you know, if I can help someone, uh, to sort of navigate this part of their career or their life, um, then that's great and uh, save them a little bit of the heartache maybe that I went through or, 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 you know, but the other thing is I, you know, I'm always really careful not to tell anybody what to do. And I don't tell people, Oh, you should quit your job and follow your dreams because it's easy for me to say, but you need a plan and you need, um, you know, the support. And, and um, so it's usually like just kind of listening and hearing their story and understanding what their circumstances are and just helping them, you know, know that they're not the only one that felt like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's neat. You don't tell them what to do. Um, but you just kind of give them guidance on your, your journey and let them make yeah. decisions. So this is what I went through and this is what I did. And, and, yeah. you know, but your journey is yours. So totally. I, you know, yeah. So, 
I want to ask a question about what things led to, but before I, you know, after that decision, but before I do that, uh, something that kind of came to me was, you know, when we talk, Martin, I just feel like you are a, uh, let's just say a more emotionally developed person, in my opinion, in my sense, than maybe most uh, age, whatever, I think doesn't really matter, but you just, you get this sense with you as just, it's so easy to talk to you and you really care. Do you think that, um, I'm curious if you have, do you have any childhood experiences or parents or, or things that maybe have contributed, if you agree with that yourself, that have contributed towards that? Or do you think it's that moment that you talked about was maybe one of the first formative moments that maybe shaped that emotional development to kind of keep, keep that path? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, it, it, we, I didn't grow up in a household where we talked about our feelings a lot. So, you know, it, it uh, we probably talk with our kids way more about this kind of stuff than I did growing up. But um, I had a bit of a unique upbringing in the sense that, you know, so both my parents are immigrants and they're both Holocaust survivors. They were babies during the war uh, and it was miraculous that either of them survived, but they had a pretty miraculous life to even just survive. And then they moved to Canada sort of towards the end of high school and they met in Canada. They didn't know each other. They lived in different cities in Poland where they were born and raised. And we didn't talk about it a lot growing up. We weren't a family that talked about the, the war and, and, and all of that. I think my parents just didn't want to burden us with that. And also they were so young during the war. It's not like they had really many memories of it themselves, but it's something that I always grew up knowing that they came from this. And, and we had no first cousins. Like it was just my sister and I and my parents. So, so it was very obvious that we had a bit of a different background than most of my friends did because, you know, my friends would always be, oh, I'm going to my cousins, going, you know, over there for dinner. And for us, we didn't have any, right? So, so we had a very small family, you know, and when your parents grew up in a very different culture than you, it's, they often have unique, let's just call them unique parenting approaches um, because it's hard for them to relate to some of the things that you go through as a kid. So, I think a lot of it I just had to kind of figure out on, on my own. But the reason I, I mentioned that is that I always sort of knew in the back of my mind that like, like it's, you know, it's a miracle that any of us are here, not to go too deep, but if you think about it, like any one of us, you know, the chances of us being here are like one in a gazillion basically. Mm -hmm. And somehow we're here. Right. And, but for me, I always felt that it, it was miraculous that either my parents survived and managed to somehow meet each other and, and, and that, that I was born. And I always felt like I, I need to do something with my life that counts. Like they didn't go through all they went through in my, you know, their families and my ancestors didn't, you know, suffer and go through what they went through uh, for me to, 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 you know, make a shit show of my life basically. Right. So I always felt not the pressure to like do something big or great, but just to do something meaningful and to, to make the most of the opportunities that I had. And so you know, I think I was going down this kind of success career path, you know, which was fine, like, you know, becoming a lawyer and, and having that great job. But I just found it somehow um, meaningless to me. Like, I didn't care about the money. I didn't care about the prestige of having a job like that. So I just knew I had to find something, you know, more meaningful and where I could have more of a positive impact. And um, so I think that that's how kind of my earlier life may have shaped that is just it wasn't anything we really spoke about, but it was this unspoken thing that like you have this one life and you 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 don't get a do-over and you're lucky to even have have you know the opportunities that, that we have here so you know try to make the most of it that was I think kind of the I, I don't know if I actually articulated that to myself at the time but that was sort of the underlying feeling yeah no I think you articulated it well wonderfully you know it's 
the fact we're here in the first place is a miracle. The fact my parents went through what they did, uh, I should I should live for so much more than maybe what I'm currently doing and, uh, you know, going out and maybe grabbing life a little bit more by the horn. So in lieu of that uh, beautiful answer, what what did you uh, pursue, right? You quit the job and mm-hmm. saw more for yourself. Ta- take us down that journey. I mean, start start where wherever you feel called to share. Yeah. So, so you know, one of the reasons I didn't like law, I think, was there's a few. One, I'm not adversarial by nature. So, like, duh, like I should have known, you know, lawyers, that's the job. It doesn't matter if you're doing corporate law, family law, criminal law, whatever you're doing, it tends to be adversarial in nature. And I don't particularly love fighting or arguing with people. So, um, so you know, what, what it, so the, the, the path was really like this. So my, my wife was working in advertising and marketing and she had a job at a, at a small uh, marketing firm. She loved the job, but she, she hated the place. She worked for a, not the nicest boss in the world. So uh, we'll leave it at that. So, um, so she loved her job, but didn't like the, the culture. I didn't like my job, like the culture, actually, the people were great uh, for the most part, but it was just not meaningful work for me. So, um, so, her, so my wife's uncle was actually doing a little bit of speaking, uh, workshops, that kind of thing, nothing on a big scale. And when he found out, you know, that his niece was, is in marketing and, and PR said, Hey, maybe you can help me market my workshops and my seminars. So she kind of stumbled into this and, um, was, I remember this is when I was still at the law firm, we would talk about it sometimes. And she'd be like, yeah, I'm doing this research to, you know, to help my uncle out with this. And she's like, you know, that people get, um, go out and get paid to speak about different things. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So she decided that she was going to like, in as like a side, you know, I guess what you today call a side hustle, but uh, in addition to her job would do marketing and PR first for her uncle. And then thought maybe there's other speakers who I could do marketing and PR for. And so she started looking at that and I was helping her a bit just with the research. And this was like pre Google, like this was like 1995. Um, so it was not easy to do research back then. Now it's, it's easy to find out anything about anything pretty much. But, um, but we did some research and I just found it fascinating because to me, like I'm really interested in, in people and their stories and I'm really interested in ideas. And, and we realized like these are people who either have really interesting ideas or really interesting stories that they're trying to share with the world and, you know, hopefully make it a better place, whether that's at work, at home, in the community, where, whatever the topic happens to be. And so, so we started looking into this more and more, and we came up with this crazy idea that maybe we could start a business together and represent speakers and book them for speaking engagements. So she would do the marketing and the PR, and I would do the, the sales and business development. And, um, you know, the only challenge was like, you know, A, we didn't know any speakers other than my wife's uncle. B, we didn't have any business experience of our own. Um, C, uh, we didn't have any contacts in the industry. But, you know, when you're young and, you know, 25 and you're, you can be sort of young and naive, you know, or maybe stupid is maybe the better word. But you think, oh, how, how hard could it be? We'll start a business together. So that's what we did. We went from two incomes to zero. Um, after doing a few months of research into the industry, we thought this is, if we're ever gonna do this now is a time, we don't have any kids, we don't have a mortgage. We've got no responsibilities to anyone but ourselves. So yeah, so we, we quit our jobs and, um, and went full time uh, into representing speakers. We started an agency called Speaker Spotlight. It was just the two of us who were working out of a spare bedroom in our apartment. Um, you know, and it was challenging, no speakers, no clients, you know, no industry experience or contacts. 
So it was really like starting something from scratch, um, but it was incredibly exciting. And every day was, you'd wake up, I was saying to someone the other day that, you know, paying your bills is a great motivation, right? Like, so no problem getting up out of bed in the morning to try to sort of start to build the business because, you know, we had um, bills to pay, but, you know, we figured we had, um, you know, probably about a year, uh, we could probably live for about a year on the savings that we had. So we figured, okay, we didn't take a loan from anyone. We didn't have any seed capital. It was just, okay, we're going to use our savings and we can live, we'll have to live like students again, which was fine. So it went from going out for, you know, nice dinners and nice vacations when we were both working to like, you know, when our friends were going out, we were like, Hey, we're, we, we can't go. We're, we're staying in, we're renting a movie. Um, couldn't really go on vacations, uh, cause we just had to kind of buckle down and, um, and change our lifestyle a bit, but that was easy. You know, that wasn't difficult. Um, and so that's kind of, that was the start of, of our business speaker spotlight. I was thinking all along, you, uh, thanks to take on the, uh, marriage of uh just in the personal relationship but now you tied a whole nother full-time job to it with uh work which is crazy uh, well maybe not maybe maybe for you it's just the, not the, for the everyone way. i wouldn't recommend it for every couple that's for sure i won't ask but maybe offline i'd love to know more um so uh tell me you know give us a snapshot what what year was this for all, for all what it's worth yeah, um, so this is 1995. Okay. So this, I mean, I can't believe how old I am now. But pre, yeah. you know, mostly internet, you know, to what it is yeah. today. Mm-hmm. What, what? So two questions. What was the speaking industry like then mm-hmm. versus what it is maybe today? And then, yeah. well, yeah, let's just start there. What What was sure. the speaking industry like then versus today? Yeah. So the big difference. I mean, it's really different. Um, one of the big differences is that I think up until about 1995, 96, um, most agents played the role of gatekeeper, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to book a speaker. Uh, well, guess what? I have my, I have their phone number and you don't. So if you want to book them, you're going to have to go through me and I'm going to get them for you. I think that was the mentality of a lot of agents, right? Yeah. So they were gatekeepers in many ways. They were people who, you know, had contacts to celebrities, authors, speakers, and so if someone wanted to book someone, unless they happened to know how to get a hold of them, you know, think about it. Like before the internet, how did you get a hold of somebody? It wasn't that easy. So that was the role. And so our timing, I think, was pretty good because we didn't, if we had started our business even a couple of years earlier, we would have started in one world, the pre-internet world, and then had to take the business online. Hmm. And I think some of the agencies had trouble doing that at that time. They they were still in the gatekeeper mindset. So for us, when we started, one of the first things we did, I remember a friend of mine showed me the internet. I didn't know what it was. He was trying to explain it to me. And he's like, you should get a website. And I'm like, what's a website? And so, you know, we, but we got a website early on with a good name, domain name, uh, speakers.ca and, um, and, and, and started the business from that point of view of like with a website and realized like, you know, we didn't think of ourselves as gatekeepers. Like, you know, that didn't make a lot of sense to us. So we were like, you know, we've got to add value and 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 deliver a valuable service for both our clients who hire the speakers and the speakers themselves. So that was kind of, you know, a big change back then, sort of as the world kind of moved online. Um, you know, the other big difference, uh, you know, in, in 2021 compared to 1995 is who the speakers are. So back then, um, you know, we were young, we were 25, 26 years old. Most of the speakers were at least in their forties or fifties. Uh, most of them were male, most of them were white. And, um, that was just the way the industry was. And, um, you know, if you weren't, you know, hadn't been around for, you know, 20 years in the workplace, most people didn't want to hear from you. If you 
you know, weren't a white male, maybe it was tough to get speaking gigs. Um, today, first of all, you know, the age of speakers gets younger and younger, I think, because there's obviously things that a 25-year-old knows that maybe a 50-year-old doesn't know, whether it's about technology or whatever. So so speakers' age is getting, I think, younger overall. People are valuing that, that you know, people from all ages have something valuable. And this shift is really, we've seen it more and more pronounced in the last couple of years. This has been one of the really good things to come out of the last few years, is just more and more diversity um, so, so more women, uh, more people of color speaking and the, and the, and the speakers at conferences are more and more representative of the audiences, which I think is really important and, you know, just makes for a richer learning experience when you've got diverse ideas, diverse thoughts, diverse perspectives. So that's the other big difference. And, um, you know, a client not too long ago said to me, you know, gave us a briefing for what they're looking for and said, oh, and by the way, you know, don't send me anyone male, pale and stale. And so, you know, it's, uh, you know, that's not something you would have heard 25 years ago. That's for sure. <laughs> I feel like that should be the opening line in the, for the promo <laughs> video. <laughs> uh, probably not. Um, but no, Martin, I, it's amazing to me, one, just the evolution, right, of, of the times that we're in today. So that, that comment with cultural relevancy makes a lot of sense. But to mm-hmm. see the trajectory over 25 years now, right, yeah. um, just to yeah. see um, how things have shifted, but also that perspective, right, is so neat. And then also, yeah, I'm sure how that's impacted the evolution of your business and who you work with. One of the questions that I have, which I find, um, you said you didn't have... Uh, but let me back up. You said you didn't have industry contacts. You have a ton of experience. I mean, to, to this is such a relational, relationally driven business. You know, what did you and your wife do? I'm sure it was a team effort. Do to go out and build these relationships and piece together what is your business to get today. I mean, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. So it was a combination of things. Um, we joined a couple of sort of industry associations, like Meeting Professionals International and that kind of thing. So we started going to events where there were, you know, meeting professionals, conference organizers uh, attending, and and just started sort of networking. Um, didn't really know how to network, but you know, just did that. Started meeting people. So that was part of it. You know, my my wife was spending a lot of her time doing marketing and PR. So we were lucky enough to get a few. Um, nice pieces of media coverage that helped give us a little bit of exposure, but a lot of it, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to this was, and back then it was literally picking up the phone and making cold calls. And I was probably making on average 80, 80 to hundred calls a day, maybe for the first six to 12 months. So you're calling people, they're hanging up on you. They don't answer. You got the wrong number, but you just keep going. And the best way I can describe it is like, said to someone, it's like, it's like banging your head against the wall a hundred times a day. Like after, the good thing is after a while, it doesn't hurt as much. Um, and you just get used to the fact that like most of the time, you know, you're not going to, you know, the goal isn't to get a sale. Like the, it wasn't to like book a speaker. The goal was just to reach the right person in an organization who might be the one who actually has the decision-making uh, or the job to hire speakers and then just try to connect with them, send them some information about who we are, um, you know, what we do and just start to try to build a relationship. So I would measure the success of any given day on on one thing, not how many speakers we booked, because the answer to that was usually zero. But if I made 100 calls and managed to actually get 10 people on the phone and six of them said, yes, go ahead and send me the information, I'd walk over to, there's a post office five minutes away from where we lived at the time. And I'd walk over in a day with five envelopes, throw them in 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 the mailbox 
and go, okay, that wasn't a bad day, five today. If it was 10, that was better. If it was one, that wasn't so good. But it was all about the input, right? I wasn't so worried about the output. I wasn't worried about how many speakers are we going to book because I knew that everything I was doing, or at least I hoped, at that time was going to hopefully pay dividends three months down the road, six months down the road, 12 months down the road, whenever. Mm -hmm. It was just the beginning of just getting on people's radar, let them know who we are, and keeping in touch with them. And at some point, hopefully, when they had a need, they would think about us. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Goosebumps. It's uh, <laughs> goosebumps because uh, you've taken, you took such a, like a long-term approach and you saw how it would compound over time and then you didn't sacrifice maybe the short term to uh, maybe just achieve, you know, monetary goals when maybe you could have, but you said, you know what, this is, I'm in this for the long haul and you saw how it would build. So I want to ask you a question and if nothing comes to you immediately, no worries, but if something does come, I, I think it could be a good story. So let's just say those early years of sending those envelopes, you know, day in and day out, did you have any, let's just say one of the envelopes that you sent any crazy stories that it's led to, and maybe still impacts you to this day? Um, I don't know if there's one that still impacts it. There's a few speakers we met back way back then that we ended up having, you know, relationships that lasted like for decades. Wow. Um, but I, you know, I, I had a, I have a kind of a funny story. Um, so, so once in a while, you know, when you're making a hundred calls a day, once in a while you get lucky, right? Like what's the expression, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Yeah. Right. So, so once in a while you call someone and they actually like, Oh wow, your timing is perfect. I just came out of a meeting. I've got to hire a speaker for a conference. I'm, I'm so glad you called me. And you're like startled, right? Because like, that's a lot. But, but if you make enough calls once in a while, you actually get someone at the right time on the right day. So this person was like, I need some ideas. And, you, and by the way, remember, this is mid-90s. So there's no email. There's no internet, really. Like, you know, it's very crude. So, so the way that we would have to get proposals to clients is we would have to make video cassettes, like VHS tapes of our speakers and then send them out by overnight courier, you know, or, or, or delivery service to get to clients. Right. So, so we couldn't just send them a link to a YouTube video. So, so it's like four o'clock in the afternoon and I get a hold of this person and they give me the briefing and they're like, Oh, the only problem is I have a meeting at 8 AM tomorrow. Is there any way you can get this to me for 8 AM tomorrow? And I said, okay, well, where, where's your office? And it was about 45 minutes out of town. So, uh, 45 minute drive from where we were. So it was a, it was an agricultural group and they were out in sort of a country kind of thing. So I said, yeah, no problem. So we put together a package, uh, of three or four speakers we recommend included all their, you know, promotional materials, the video, and we get in the car. Now it's like, let's say, I don't know, five 6 o'clock. Cause there's no delivery service. I can get it there for the, before eight o'clock the next morning. Right? It's too late to, for the overnight service. So we're just, we're going to drive it out ourselves. So we drive out to the middle of nowhere and we get to the address. I thought it was going to be like an, you know, an office building or something. And it's like, it's not, it's like this kind of industrial or not industrial company. It's, it's a building within a fenced area and like a rural farm area. So I can't even get up to the building. The whole thing is fenced in and the, the, the gate is locked. So I'm like, oh man, we drove all the way out here. And I remember it was raining a little bit. And I'm like, you know what, Farrah, wait, wait in the car. I'm going to hop the fence, okay? And I'm going to just leave the package at the front door of the office and I'll be back in a couple of minutes. So I hop the fence. So it's like a good 10 foot fence, right? So I go over the fence. It's like about a 30, 40 meter or, or yard run from the fence to the, to the building. So I'm running across this field. I get to the building. 
And just for fun, I actually just pushed the door just to see, because it was raining. So I thought, well, what, it's probably not open, but if I could leave it inside, I thought, ah, even better. So I pushed the door and the door's unlocked. So I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, so I'm now in this empty building. And I'm like, you know what would be really cool is that rather than just leaving it here in the hallway, I'm going to put it in this person's office. So I found her office, like, you know, her name's on the office, and I put it on her chair. And I'm walking out, and as I leave, I went through the door. I could hear like what sounded maybe like the alarm going off or something. And I'm like, oh shoot, I think I actually might've tripped like a security alarm. So I'm sprinting back to the car and I'm yelling at Vera, like start the car, start the car. And so I hop over the back over the fence, we get in the car and we're driving away. And as we're pulling away and getting onto this road to head to the highway to take us back home, we see like two police cars coming the other way. Uh, and we're like, yeah, they're probably headed there. So anyway, <laughs> we get home, um, we don't get arrested. And I, I leave a message to the client saying, I just want to make sure you got the package. And she was like, the next day I spoke to her, she's like, how did you get this to me? I don't understand how you could have gotten this to me so quickly. I'm like, oh, you know, whatever, we made it work, not to worry. And um, so that was kind of cool. It was fun. Um, it wow. was, that was a fun night. It was just one of the crazy things, you know, you do, especially when you're you're a young entrepreneur and you're starting out and you're willing to do just about anything you can without breaking the law to, to try to please a client or, or, you know, win a piece of business. Yeah. That's sheer, that sheer will and uh, dedication, right? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit of stupidity too, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it all worked out. Not stupid at all. I mean, I would, I love those live for those yeah. stories. So yeah, it's fun. Um, I'm glad, I'm glad you could share that here. Um, yeah. Super cool. So with that hustle and that, drive right like you clearly you were going to do whatever it took to win right like that was clearly you baked in the dna of, of what you felt today so with that i'm also curious you know you have seen some of the best speakers in the world represented them uh feel free to share if you're called to if not no worries but what what when you look at your experience and you may not be right every time but how do you know when someone is going to be a great speaker what's it take yeah it's great i mean it, there's an intangible i mean there's certain things obviously that that you need you know you need some expertise in the in the topic you know uh um so you you know whether it's life experience um uh, or you know or or you're you know you're a practitioner and you've you know you've you know, you've done the work in whatever the field is, or, you know, you've worked in a certain area. So, so obviously you need a huge amount of, of that sort of credibility and experience um, and expertise. Um, and obviously you need great communication skills and there's not one way to do it. There's not a right way to do a presentation or wrong way. I've seen speakers do it in many different ways, different styles. Um, but I think the thing at the end of the day is, is there's an authenticity that the great speakers have that it's not, it's not a performance. It's not, you know, it certainly takes a lot of work. It doesn't, you know, some people come more naturally to than others, but at the end of the day, you know, you put in that work, you, you work on your craft at getting better as a speaker. Um, and you do all that so that when you get on the stage, I think you can actually just be yourself and be authentic And the audience. I think now more than ever, audience can sense when someone is being authentic and when someone's just putting on an act. And I think that that's what makes great speakers really great is that, um, you know, they are not trying out there to impress anybody. They're not there for themselves, you know, for their own ego gratification. They're there actually to serve an audience, to deliver a message that is hopefully going to help people in the audience 
be better. You know, again, whether that it means they're going to be better at their jobs or it means they're going to be better at home as, as a parent or a partner or better in their community and in getting more involved maybe in community activities or charitable causes or what have you, just being a better person. So I think that that's, to me, uh, the big thing is is just, you know, people who are really comfortable in their own skin and are not there for themselves, but are there to serve the audience and the client um, tend to me to be the best, uh, the best speakers. I love what you said about uh, the intangibles, but they're not there. It's not performative, right? It's extremely yeah. authentic. And yeah, I think you, in a way, like you have to be so comfortable with yourself uh, to do that. And so few people mm-hmm. are just in the world, you know, so yeah. you couple that with intangibles of speaking, uh, even, even harder, but, you know, having an eye for that. Right. And, but then, you know, also saying that you're, you're essentially, you're going to look to represent these more authentic speakers, which I'm sure has cultivated a very meaningful business for you. And with that, you know, I'd love you to share, you know, you've been doing this number of decades, Where's the business today? What does it look like? What what was your vision then? What it is now, and and where where do you think it'll be in the next ten years? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, if we were sitting here two years ago, right, having this conversation, nobody would have been thinking about, you know, that there's going to be a global pandemic and and all you know all events would be moved online for the better part of, of a year and a half or, or, or longer. So I don't know, you know, what what the future is going to look like. Is actually now is a really interesting time that. And, ask that question because as we're seeing a return more and more to in-person events, we think that virtual events will stay strong and there'll be a mix of those and there'll be hybrid events as well. So it's really, it's really hard to say exactly what, what is going to happen. I think that some events work much better in person for sure than virtual and, and they should be in person, but sometimes, you know, just doing a virtual event allows more people to participate and keeps, can keep costs down and so forth. So, you know, I, I think that we have gone through a lot of change and I think we're, you know, we're just going to continue to see more and more diverse voices uh, speaking. I think we're going to see more and more of uh, these types of speakers who are just really authentic and really, you know, have either, you know, overcome something or accomplished something great or just have real deep expertise in their subject matter. I think that, um, you know, the days of, of you know, there was certainly when we started, you'd see more speakers who, you know, they'd be quote unquote leadership experts, but they never actually led an organization or a team. And, you know, maybe they read a bunch of books on leadership and put together a talk and they could do a good 45 or 60 minute keynote. But if there was a Q&A, that would be when their lack of, of real expertise would show. So I think people who have really deep expertise, like I said earlier, I think there's no right way to do it. And so speaker, you know, it's not like they need to look a certain way or sound a certain way. It's just really about connection with the audience and and again, that to me is a lot based on on people being authentic to themselves. You know, we work with a speaker named Sunil Gupta, and uh, he wrote a book recently called Backable. And one of the things I loved in the book is he talked about conviction versus charisma. So it's, he was saying that, you know, he was talking a little really about entrepreneurs and who, you know, or but it's really for anyone who has to sort of pitch what they do and and become backable. That's the term he uses. And he said, you know, the people who are really backable are the ones that have a tremendous amount of conviction. You know, you don't have to be the most charismatic person, but you have to have a conviction in what you're saying. 
And I, I, I really agree with that. That resonates with me because not everybody's given the gift of charisma. Some people have it, some people not so much. I don't think I was someone who was born with that and I don't consider myself a charismatic person, but I have a lot of, a lot of conviction uh, in what I do and what I believe in. And I think that that's really helped me. And I think for speakers as well, um, you know, you need to be, have really strong convictions in what you're saying because people can tell if you don't really care that much and you're just doing it because that's the flavor of the month or that's what the market supposedly wants or speakers on certain topics. So I think that's, that's really something that that's important. Wow. Martin, I'm incredibly just like, uh, I admire the journey that you, you've been down the way you speak about it in such a humble way, uh, given everything you've done. And I uh, feel like I'm following in a similar way in your footsteps and could learn so much from you in the years to follow. And I, it's nice to have such engaging conversations and this was really meaningful. So thanks for showing up and I wish we had an hour longer. Uh, so maybe part two will have to come. Uh, Definitely. When, uh, where can people find you, reach out to you? How do they connect with you? Yeah. So our website is speakers.ca. So that's, you can find us there. You find more than you'll ever want to know about us. And, and, um, uh, you know, lists of our speakers and, and so forth. And the contact information is, is there. So that's our website. So that's probably the easiest way uh, they can find us. Awesome. And, um, and I've really enjoyed chatting about Brian and I, yeah, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. So I know you and I'll have many more conversations. They might not be recorded like this, but I look forward to, uh, to chatting more. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thanks again. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.